بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين بين محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وارزقنا علما تنفعنا به آمين رب العالمين الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله We are back to our بلوغ المرام lessons and uh, we are still busy with Kitabul Salah, walhamdulillah. And we are busy discussing the chapter which deals with Imamah and Jama'ah. So tonight's discussion will be again about a hadith pertaining to the Imam, specifically relating to the Imam of the Salah. So we, we move on to the first hadith which is narrated from Amr ibn Salamah radiallahu an. He said that my father said, جئتكم من عند النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم حقا that we, I came to you from the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم حقا يعني he was truly the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم يعني he's a true Prophet so he said فإذا حضرت الصلاة فليؤذن, أحد فليؤذن أحدكم when the time for Salah comes when the Salah is present when the Salah presents itself then let one of you make the Adhan وَلْيَأُمَّكُمْ أَكْثَرُكُمْ قُرْآنًا And let the one who is the most versed in the Qur'an lead the salah. Let one of you or the one, of you, the one that is the most versed in the Qur'an, let him be the imam of the salah. Let him lead the salah. قَالَ So he said, فَنَظَرُوا فَلَمْ يَكُنْ أَحَدٌ أَكْثَرَ قُرْآنًا مِنِّي so the people, they looked around and they did not find anyone that was more versed in the Qur'an than myself. So, فَقَدَّمُونِي they فَقَدَّمُونِي يعني they uh, made me the Imam basically, right? وَأَنَا إِبْنُ أَوْ سِنِينَ And at the time I was six or seven years old. رواه البخاري وأبو داود والنسائي حديث البخاري أبو داود والنسائي So the Sahabi, Amr ibn Salama, Amr ibn Salama, he mentions this hadith from his father. He narrates this, from, this hadith from his father whose name is of course Salama. And Ibn Uthaymin rahimahullah, he explains and he says that Salama and others, they, and many others, they would go to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in delegations. And specifically this happened often in the ninth year of the Hijrah. It happened often in the ninth year of the Hijrah, which was known as the year of delegations. The people came from all over. And they would come and sit and spend time with the Prophet and learn from him. And then they would go back to their people and of course go relay the message and teach the people what they learned um, from their time with the Prophet So his father, Salama, he was the one, oh, he was part of the delegation. He went and he went to go and study. This is in other words what, what they went and done. They went and they spent time with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam for what reason? To go and learn. For the, for, the, for the purpose of learning, of studying. 
So this is why he said, "Jitukum min indin Nabi." He said, "I came to you from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam." So this is the son narrating from the father, saying, "My father said to us," meaning after he came back from his journey, that I came to you from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Haqqan, the true prophet. He was truly a prophet. This is the word that the father used. Which means he's now bearing witness. He's giving his shahada, his testimony, that the prophet and his, his risala was a true one. He was truly the messenger that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had sent. That he had sent. Because whatever he witnessed from the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from his various ayat, his signs that he had come with of truth, all of this and his perfect akhlaq and adab, all of this was enough to convince this man, Salama, that this is truly a, a prophet and a messenger. And this is why when he came back, he said these words, I came to you from the prophet, Haqqan, sallallahu alayhi wa he was a true, true messenger. And many of the, uh, of the ulama, they stated that even if the Prophet ﷺ did not come with ayat, various different types of signs and, and proofs and evidences that he was a prophet, that he was truly a messenger. And there were many things, many miracles that happened. And I mean, we see this from the Seerah lessons, how the Quraysh were always defeated in their efforts and in their, their various tactics that they used. The various ayah that he came with and miracles that he came with and so forth. But some of the scholars, they stated, even if he did not come with this, even if he came with none of these miracles, the fact that they could just sit and spend time with him, his company was such, his akhlaq, his character was such, that this was enough to convince people that this was a messenger. This was enough to convince people that this is truly a prophet. This was not just an ordinary man. There was something special about him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the father, he said, he narrates that he came from the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who was through the Prophet, and he said, إِذَا حَضَرَتِ الصَّلَاةِ فَلْيُؤَذِّنْ أَحَدُكُمْ وَلْيَأُمَّكُمْ أَكْثَرَكُمْ قُرْآنًا First and foremost, when the salah comes, when the salah presents itself, what does this mean? The waqt, right? This could mean one thing, it could mean the waqt. Another thing it could mean is, is when you intend to perform salah. It could either mean the waqt, or it could mean when you actually intend to make the salah, when you actually intend to pray. And there's a difference here. To simplify this difference, think of salatul dhuhr. Currently, what time is salatul dhuhr? Okay, part of post 12, around about there, right? What time do we pray salah? 12. Go to any masjid. Every salah, the waqt is at what time? One, one o'clock. The adhan is given. And the salah starts at about 10 past to go to past one. So when is the imam, when is the muaddin supposed to give the adhan? Is it at 12.30 when the waqt is in? Or when the people intend to make salah? You understand? So this is the thing here. This is what this part of the hadith, what Ibn Uthaymin is explaining. 
When the salah presents itself, when the salah is now present, one of you must give the adhan. What is meant by this? It can either mean when the time of the adhan is in, so the earliest waqt, that is when it, or it could mean when you actually intend to pray, when the general people pray. And this is what the Sheikh says is more likely to be what's meant by this part of the hadith. Hence, to make it at 1 o'clock is better than making it at 12.30. Right? But does this mean if somebody prayed at 12.30, is it, is it is his salah valid? Yes. His salah is valid because he prayed within the waqt. But the adhan should be given when the salah is about to be performed. Not you give the adhan at 12.30 and people only come to the masjid 45 minutes later for the prayer. That doesn't make sense. Right? Also an evidence he brings from the sunnah when they were on a journey and the time of dhuhr had come. Bilal was about to go and give the adhan. He was ready to give the adhan. The Prophet sallallahu said to him, Abrada, let things cool down. It was scorching hot. It was heat. The heat was scorching. He said what? Let things calm down and cool down a bit. It's too hot for the people to stand up and pray now in the sun and go out and take wudu in the sun and so forth. Let things cool down. And again later on he said to him again, Abrada, let things cool down. Until some time went by and they could see the waqt was getting late. And then he allowed him, after things had cooled down a bit, he allowed him to then make the adhan and they prayed. The point is, he didn't just delay the salah, he delayed the adhan as well. Because the two go together. The two they go um, together. So what we say here is, when the salah is about to be performed, this is when you should make the adhan. So likewise, if you go out on a journey, whether you're a big delegation and you're on the road and you're about to perform salah, you're a traveler, so maybe you delay the salah. You should make the adhan before you are going to make salah. This would be a sunnah that you are then fulfilling. Okay? The same with Isha. If you are going to delay Isha, you can make the adhan before Isha. Especially if you are in, a, in, a, in an area where the adhan is not given. You understand? Where the adhan is not, not given. Um, and then let one of you give the adhan. Let one of you give the adhan. Whom should, who should give the adhan? Ideally someone with a loud, beautiful voice. So that the, the, the sound can travel. This is the ideal person to, to give the adhan. The adhan should not be given softly. The adhan should not be given softly. It must be done out loud. Then the man said that he said, yani the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Walya ummakum and let the one who's the most versed in the Quran lead you in the salah. What does this mean? This is a very important point. Who is the one who should lead the salah? Right? The most knowledgeable in the deen of Allah. Okay? But look what the hadith says. Aktharukum Qur'anan. The one who is the most versed in the Qur'an. He knows the most Qur'an. The Hafiz. The one who is the most knowledgeable of the recitation of the Qur'an. Meaning, he's memorized the most of the Qur'an. So Ibn Uthaymin says, if you've got one person, he's memorized 10 ajazah. And another person has memorized 15 ajazah. Of course, who do we put in front? 15. The 15 ajazah. Because he's Akhtar, he's Akhtar Qur'an and he knows more of the Qur'an. So he should lead the salah. 
Understand? So the people they looked around. When the when his father said this, he relayed this message. This is what the Nabi said. The people started to look around. Who should then lead the salah? And what did they find? They found that I was the one who knew the most Quran. Damuni, and so they placed me in front. They made me the Imam. Meaning what the people, once they, once they learned, learned this hadith, immediately they didn't, oh, the oldest must stand in front, or this one must stand in front, or the son of so-and-so must stand in front. They immediately took the hadith and what? Who knows the most Quran? Let's find the person who knows the most Quran. Let's find the person who knows the most Quran. And the Sahabi, he says, they, they, they then turned to me because I was the one who knew the most Quran at the time. Right? I was the one who knew the most Quran at the, at the time. Amr ibn Salama, radiallahu an. And it is said that he, as a youngster, he would meet up people who traveled from Medina, people who came. And he used to sit with them and learn the Quran from them. As a youngster, this is what he did. And this is why in his village that they were in, he was the one who knew the most Quran. Tayyip. And look at the wording that he uses. He says, فَلَمْ يَكُنْ أَحَدٌ أَكْثَرَ مِنِّي قُرْآنًا He says, there was nobody from amongst these people that had more Quran than him. That knew more Quran than him. What does this tell us? What does this tell us? This tells us that they did know parts of the Quran. Right? But then nobody knew more than him. Are you with me? It's not to say that they knew nothing. They knew parts. They knew things. But nobody knew more than this, this, this guy, Amr ibn Salama. Tayyip. And how old was he at this time? You missed the beginning part of the hadith. He said, and I was six or seven years old. At the time, I was six or seven years old. So what does this prove? What does this prove? That the one who knows the most Quran, he must lead the salah. Even if he's a child. Even if he's a child. This, this youngster was six or seven years old. Damuni, They put me in front. They let me lead the salah. Understand? And he says, وَأَنَا ibn Sittin أَوْ سَبْعِ سِنِينَ I was six or seven years old. Meaning there was some doubt. He wasn't sure at the time. But obviously if you narrated some years later, I was six or seven. It's normal. It's not to say that he forgot major things. Six or seven is very close. So he, this is, but, but he narrated it. And he said, at the time I was six or seven years old. Making a point that at the time I was made the imam of my people. Of his village basically wherever he was from. The hadith is in Bukhari. And Abu Dawud and Nasai. So it's a hadith that is sahih, alhamdulillah. So what does this hadith tell us? The hadith informs us that Salama, al-Jurami, he was of those people who went, traveled, part of the delegation, studied, and they sat with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam until they had no doubt that he was truly the messenger. And he came back 
after witnessing many of the miracles and the signs of the Prophet wasallam that he was truly the Prophet and that he's not a liar and so forth. Rather, he's a sadiqul masduq, the truthful and the believed one. And he witnessed the way he prayed, the way he made, he worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They witnessed his actions, his deeds, his interactions with others, his akhlaq. And after learning from him, he returns back to his people and he gives them this message. Of course, he must have mentioned some other things as well, but this is this, this particular hadith. He gives them this message that when the salah presents itself, let one of you give the adhan. And the one who is the most versed in the Quran, let him lead the salah. That's what he said. And then the people looked around and they, they settled on his son, Amr. That he is the most, he knows the most, so they made him the imam. And he was six or seven years old um, at the time. Amr ibn, uh, Amr, Amr ibn Salama. Amr ibn Salama. At the end of this hadith, which is not mentioned in Bulugh, the author Ibn Uthaymin rahimahullah mentions that at the end of this hadith, this psalm, so this sahabi Amr ibn Salama, it is said that he did not have a thawb that was long enough. And whenever he would make sujood, his thawb would ride up and his thighs and so forth would become exposed. And People obviously complained about this. Um, but yet he was the imam of the masjid. And eventually he was of course given clothing and so forth. Uh, uh, that he could make salah in that. That basically covered his awrah. So he come to the benefits of this hadith. Let, let us get to the end of the lesson and we'll discuss. Okay, some benefits of the hadith. Number one is, the sheikh says, يَنْبَغِيَ الْوُفُودِ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ لِتَلَقِّ الشَّرِيعَةَ مِنْهُمْ That is very important that we actually travel to whom? To the ulama, to sit with the scholars and to take the knowledge of the deen from them, of the sharia from them. Because this is what these people did, they traveled. They went out for some time and they sat at the feet of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They spent time with him and they studied with him and then they would go home. So he is the Prophet, but the ulama, the, the, who are they? They are the inheritors of the Prophets. So this is what the students and what people should do. They should try and spend time with scholars. Even if it means you need to travel and sit with him, then this is what's important. Because that is how knowledge is actually given over. Al-ilmu bit-talaqi. Al-ilmu bit-talaqi. Knowledge is something that's passed down. From the Prophet ﷺ to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. To the tabi'een. To the atba'u tabi'een. And so forth. What we find today is. This little chain or this 
unbreakable chain is now being broken. Knowledge is no longer being passed down. Knowledge is now sought by people by themselves. On the internet, through WhatsApp, through a little picture that they read here, one hadith on a picture, you know, one video that they watched, and then they formulate opinions. That contradicts the opinions of senior ulama upon the sunnah. Trusted scholars of hadith, of fiqh, of aqidah, of tafsir, of the Arabic language. You got people who know nothing. Not even a word in Arabic. No memorization, never mind understanding the Quran. No knowledge of fiqh, no, no books of aqidah. They studied nothing. But they have opinions that what? Counters the opinions of the senior scholars. So this chain that is now being broken because people... They pick up little crumbs of knowledge and then they formulate opinions based on this. And this is something that's extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous that people take knowledge from incorrect sources and they pick up little bits, bits and pieces and then formulate opinions on this. And this is what we find. It's rife in our our communities and all over the world. And it's a major fitna. It's a major fitna. So if you take the internet, for example... There's a lot of khayr in the internet. I'm obviously speaking now in terms of deen. There's a lot of khayr because there's a lot of very powerful and valuable resources that we can use the internet for. Good websites that have really good information, that have really powerful fatawa, for example, that have resources in terms of recordings of scholars, and recordings of different talks and lectures, that's beneficial. But at the same time, the internet can also be abused. Where people use these and other websites, and becomes a fitna. They just Google a fatwa and they, and they follow. Without knowing credibility, without understanding it properly, this can become a major fitna. And this is what we obviously are seeing today. So this issue of al-ilm bit-talaqi is so important. To study, you have to go sit with people who've studied. Who sat with people who studied? Who sat with people who studied? That's how you seek knowledge. The same with a person who wants to memorize the Quran. Who do you go to to teach you? Do you go to a person who's also hafid? Who did hifz under a person who's hafid? Who did hifz? Or do you go to memorize the Quran under a person who, who hasn't memorized the Quran? Who do you take as a Qur'an teacher? Someone who's memorized as well, who's been through the methods, who's been through the way, the school and so forth. Or do you go to a guy, he gives the adhan at the masjid, he opened up a hiv school. Or he's the son of the committee members, uh, he's the son of the, 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 the what's it? The, 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 one of the main committee members of the masjid, his son opened a, a hiv school. I'm going to send my son to him. Would you do that? No person would do that. So why is it that people, when they seek knowledge of the deen, this is what they do. They take knowledge from, from individuals who have no qualifications, who haven't sat under any ulama, who don't know the basics of the deen. And it's a major issue, Allah musta'an. So this is a point, the Sheikh mentions a small point, but it's a very important point that we need to also understand. Knowledge must be taken from the people of knowledge. And that's the unbreakable chain. The moment we go elsewhere, then this becomes a major problem. Um, طيب, the, another benefit of this hadith is that the adhan must be given 
Ideally, the adhan should be given, especially in an in a area where it's not been given already. If it's been given by a masjid in the area, there's no need for every household now to give the adhan. Right? If you're traveling, you're on the road, it's good to give the adhan. And then you make the iqamah and you make the salah. <coughs> right? If you're staying in a remote place, there's no adhan. You can give the adhan, something good. Understand? And it should be given with a loud voice. A loud voice. This is the... Um, the way it should be done and Allah knows best. The hadith also proves that responding to the mu'adhin is not wajib. What do, we mean, what do I mean by responding? No, no. What I mean is the mu'adhin says Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar and you say Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Ashadu ala ilaha illa you say ashadu ala ilaha illa. He says hayya ala salah, you say la hawla wa la quwa, right? La hawla wa la quwa billah billah. That is some scholars have said it's fard. Some scholars say it's a sunnah to do that, to repeat after the mu'adhin. But the shaykh is saying is, if you look at this hadith, right? This was towards the end of the life of the Prophet If it was fard to also respond to the adhan, just like it's a fard to give the adhan, then he would have mentioned it to them. Because these people are going back home to teach their people. Had it been such an important thing, he would have told them, when you give the adhan, make sure that the people also respond after the adhan. So the Sheikh uses this as an evidence and he says, the fact that it's not mentioned in this context proves that it's actually a sunnah, it's mustahab, it's highly recommended. Highly recommended. There's a great reward for it. But it's not a fard, as in if a person does not do it, he's not, he is not sinful for that. Wallahu a'lam. Also the mu'adhin should be a male. The mu'adhin should be a male because the hadith says فَلْيُؤَذِّنْ أَحَدُكُمْ which is a the, the, in terms of now the grammar or the wording that's used it's useful a male. Can we also derive from this hadith that there is no adhan required for sunnah salah? Adhan for sunnah salahs. Is there any adhan for a sunnah salah? This hadith doesn't mention fardu sunnah. But if you, the hadith is also, how is the hadith understood? The hadith is understood to refer to the fara'id, right? When the, uh, the, when the, the salah presents itself, there should be adhan, yani the fard. Everybody knows and understands it like this. Understand? So this is therefore a refutation, because the word adhan also means a call. The call to prayer, right? It's a call. So what happens is, to eat salah. What do people say? Salatul istisqa. People often say, As-salatu jami'ah. Have you heard this? As-salatu jami'ah. This is a call to prayer. It's not, a, it's not the adhan in the way that we know it, but it's still a call to prayer. And this is actually not legislated. Because it's a sunnah prayer. And the sunnah salawat has no call to prayer. Understand? The sunnah salah has no call to prayer. It should not be done, yes. It's an innovation. There's no evidence for it. There's no evidence for it. Taib, except for Salatul Kusuf. The Sheikh says, except for Salatul Kusuf, because this was done in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Bukhari. That they actually said, As-Salatul Jami'ah for Salatul Kusuf specifically. Why? Because Kusuf comes up suddenly. Remember today, 
you can you can sort of tell when there's going to be an eclipse and so forth. But back then they, they didn't have the signs. So if they saw hey, there's an eclipse taking place, they would shout, call out to the people, Asalatu Jami'ah. And people would come because it was it happened suddenly. So they use this as a as a chance to to call the people to say that there's a jama'ah happening, there's a, there's a congregation of salah taking place. And this hadith is proven in Bukhari. Um, the hadith then also proves, which is the point of the hadith in this chapter, that the one who is the most deserved to lead the salah is the one who is the most versed in the Qur'an, even if he's a youngster, sahiran, even if he's somebody that's small, he's a youngster. Right? That's why the Sheikh again, he says, if you've got two people, one has memorized 10 ajaza and the, uh, the second has memorized 20 ajaza then of course the one who's memorized 20 ajaza should be awla to lead the salah he's more preferred to lead the salah even if he is younger than the first one even if he is younger than the one who had memorized 10 ajaza because the hadith says let the one who's the most versed in the quran lead the salah let him lead the um, salah and the Sheikh he says, what's apparent from this wording? Walia ummukum is a command. Walia ummukum is a, a instruction, a command from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And therefore what's apparent from this is that this is wajib. This is not just recommended, it is wajib. That the one who knows the most Quran should lead the salah. And it's not permissible for any other, for any, uh, for, for no reason should I say, to let anybody else stand in, in front. He should be the one who leads the, who leads the salah. In fact, Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah, he said in his risala as-salah, he said, if a man leads the people in salah, and amongst the people there is someone who is better than him, then they will continuously be upon, uh, upon naqs, or sifal, which basically means naqs. They will always be Shortcoming. There will always be some shortcoming amongst them. Because they have not given this person his haq, which is to lead the salah. Although this hadith is actually weak. Right? The hadith is weak. But the Sheikh says, this hadith strengthens that statement of Imam Ahmad. Because here the Prophet is instructing that one who knows the most Quran must lead the, must lead the salah. Right? Secondly, he says, or another point he makes is, La ibrata bil ajwad Qur'anan. No consideration is necessarily given to the better reciter. The one who recites more beautifully. But rather the consideration is to whom? The one who knows more. Not the one who recites better. Rather the one who knows more. Okay? So again the Sheikh says, let's say you have two men. The one has memorized ten ajaza, And the second one has memorized five ajaza. But the one who memorized five ajaza, he's a qari. He recites beautifully. Right? Whereas the one who memorized ten, he recites normal. Plain recitation. He's a normal reciter. And there's no haram in his recitation. There's nothing forbidden within what he's doing. See what I'm saying here? There's a lot of variables that, are, that might come up. Okay, فَالْأَوْلَىٰ أَكْثَرُ Quran. So the first one he should lead because he, he knows more and he recites fine. Right? 
Shaykh Haram could be what? For example, he recites, but he, he can't recite properly. So maybe he's memorized the whole Quran, but his recitation is poor. So now he recites the Fatiha and he mixes up the letters. And a person like this would say, look, it's better that this another person needs because this person could be, you know, his recitation is not up to scratch, especially with regards to the Fatiha. So in this case, maybe the other one should lead the Salah. Depends. It, it all depends on the situation. But the general rule is, the one who knows more should be reading the Salah. Another benefit of this hadith is we see the virtue of the Qur'an al-Azim. The great, this noble book. This is the one who must lead, this, the one who knows more Qur'an must lead. Nobody else. Doesn't matter your status, your lineage, your whatever. The one who knows the most Qur'an, he must be the one who stands in front and leads the people. Shows the virtue of the Qur'an. It also shows whom? The virtue of the Hafiz al-Qur'an. The one who carries the book. It shows he or her's virtue as well. Because it, it, it elevates their status to a point where they must be the ones who stand in front of the, of the congregation. In this hadith is also an evidence that the people should try and find a person like this to lead the salah. So when you decide who's going to lead, you should look for someone. If you know the person is more, you should let him stand in front. Understand? Whereas, if you don't know, it's even good to ask. Is there any half of the person here? Especially if, it's a, if, it's a, if the imam's not present. If the imam's not present. Or you're at a musalla where there's no imam. Right? In this case, you should look for someone who is, if you know the person, for example, or you should ask. This generally doesn't happen. What happens is, the people who frequent will just lead the salah. Or the person who was the eldest, or the person who gave the adhan, or whomsoever, they will just lead. But actually, there's a qari there, there's a hafid there. It would be better to ask, and they should, uh, they're supposed to also come to the front. That's the other issue. They shouldn't stand back. Say, no, 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 I don't want to lead the salah. It's okay, you lead the salah. And somebody else who's not befitting leads the salah. From this hadith, we see it shouldn't be like that. This youngster was made to lead because he knew the most Quran. Understand? Another point here is, it's permissible for the, a youngster to lead the salah. It's permissible, and this is clearly proven in this hadith. Right? Now, when it comes to the nawafil salah, the voluntary salawat, basically all scholars agree that it's permissible. All scholars agree that it is permissible for a youngster to lead. So if it's tarawih, for example, a youngster can lead, it's a nafil salah. No, no dispute. But when it comes to ifard, then there is difference of opinion amongst the ulama over whether a youngster can lead the salah or not. طيب. What's well known from the madhab of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah, is that it's not permissible for a youngster to lead the salah, the fard salah. It's not permissible for a youngster to lead the fard salah. Why? Because first and foremost for him to be making the fard is not fard. It's, it's enough for him. Even though it's maghrib or isha, it's for him, what's the ruling? It's enough because he's a youngster. So if he doesn't make salah, is it is a punishment upon him? No. So therefore for him in the first place, it's enough. Hence, for him to lead the salah, can't work. Okay? So the one who's making enough can't lead the, one, lead the one who's making fard. This is what they are saying, right? But the sheikh says, this hadith is an evidence against him. This hadith is what? 
and evidence against them and what they are saying. So they they've brought three uh, three arguments. Number one is this is specific to this man, Amr ibn Salama. This this year was what this ruling is what specific to him. The answer to this is where is the evidence that is specific to him. That's basically the answer. There is no evidence to say that this is only for him and his people. There's no such. There's no evidence for this. So that. Argument is not accepted, basically. Summarize the answer. There's no evidence to state that it's for him alone. If the Prophet has said something, it's for the whole Ummah. Unless he specified it himself. And in this instance here, he did not specify it for him alone, so we don't accept that argument. Point number two they made is that لَيْسَ فِي الْحَدِيثِ مَا عَلَىٰ أَنَّ الرَّسُولَ بِذَلِكَ there is no evidence in this hadith that the Prophet knew what happened. That they knew that, that he knew that the youngster was made to lead the salah. Are you with me? Because what happened was this the father met, met the Prophet, came back and said, This is what the Nabi said. The one who knows the most Quran must lead the salah. So the people made him lead the salah. The Prophet was in Medina, he didn't know what's happening. You understand the argument? What's the refutation on this? Yes, basically. Because even if he didn't know, Allah would have informed him. Because this is a matter of deen. And if something in the, in the life of the Prophet, it happened in his lifetime. If something in his lifetime happened that was haram, somehow or the other clarification would have come to clarify this haram. Are you with me? There would have been a clarification. Either way, either Allah sent wahi, or Allah gave him wahi through a dream, or Allah informed him, or somebody would have been come from that village and said, you know what, there's a youngster that's seven years old in the salah. Because the clarification had to come. To what? To show that this is not permissible. Because now the whole ummah is following this hadith. This happened in the time of the Prophet. So this argument we don't accept. That the Prophet didn't know about it. Even if he didn't know about it. He would have been informed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about it. Had it been wrong what they were doing. Understand? And the third argument was that the rest of the people couldn't recite Quran. They were all ummi, you know? Ummi, like the Prophet was ummi, meaning they couldn't read and write. They were unlettered people. The only one who could recite was him. This is why they made him lead. Do we accept this argument? I explained this earlier. This is why I focused in on those, that wording. He said they looked and they couldn't find anybody else that knew more Quran than me. The wording is very important. Nobody knew more Quran than me. But they knew parts of the Quran. They were not unlettered people. So we do not accept that argument either. So none of the arguments that they brought forth is really evidence-based or strong enough for us to move away from this clear hadith which is authentic. Then the Sheikh says, is there any age which is a limit, a cut-off limit? So he says there's no actual evidence to cite that you can say, you know, at that age only can we start leading. Or there's no, there's no hadith that says anything like this, right? Um, طيب. Let's move on to the next hadith from, uh, from Abi Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. He said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, يَا أُمُّ الْقَوْمَ أَقْرَأُهُمْ لِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ 
The one who is the most versed in the book of Allah, he should lead the people. فَإِنْ كَانُوا فِي الْقِرَاءَةِ سَوَاءً فَأَعْلَمُهُمْ بِالسُنَّةِ If they are even or equal in their recitation of the Qur'an, then the one who is the most knowledgeable in the sunnah should lead the people. فَإِنْ كَانُوا فِي السُنَّةِ سَوَاءً فَأَقْدَمُهُمْ هِجْرَةً If they are equal in that as well, in their knowledge of the sunnah, then the one who made hijrah earliest should lead the salah. فَإِنْ كَانُوا فِي الْهِجْرَةِ سَوَاءً فَأَقْدَمُهُمْ سِلْمًا وَفِي رِوَايَةٍ سِنًّا And if they are equal, they made hijrah together. They made hijrah at the same time. Then the one who is the earliest to accept Islam should lead the salah. And in one narration it says, the one who is the oldest should lead the salah. وَلَا يَأُمَّنَّ الرَّجُلَ الرَّجُلَ فِي سُلْطَانِهِ وَلَا يَقْعَدْ وَلَا يَقْعُدْ فِي بَيْتِهِ عَلَى تَكْرِمَتِهِ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِهِ No man should be an imam for another, for another man in prayer, if the prayer holds authority. Or occupy his place of honor in his house without his permission. We'll explain those that at the end, inshallah, of the hadith. طيب, so what does this hadith tell us? First and foremost, this hadith is explicitly telling us who must lead the salah. And the levels that we have to go through to, to decide the next one and who's the next one and so forth. Right? Um, so the first thing the hadith says is, the one who knows the most first in the Quran, in the book of Allah, must lead the people. And this we explained already. What does this mean? It means the one who knows the most, memorize the most. He must lead the, the salah. Tayyip. And if they are equal, let's say they're both hafiz. They're both the same. Now who leads the salah? Which hafiz do you make to put in front? The one who knows the most of the sunnah. What does this mean? What is meant by sunnah? The word sunnah is, is such a, a, a word that has so many meanings attached to it. Right? The word sunnah refers to the, the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? Not, you see, if, if I said, uh, what's the ruling on the two rakats of the Maghrib? What's the ruling on it? What's the ruling on it? The two rakat after Maghrib. What's the hukum? Is it fard? It's sunnah, right? It's sunnah. It's sunnah. That's what sunnah means in one context. Right? It's a sunnah meaning it's, it's not fard. It's not makruh. In terms of the ruling, it can take one meaning. Understand? But this is obviously not what's meant in this instance. What's meant here is the, the general um, way of the Prophet, the life of the Prophet The sunnah, yani in terms of his ahadith, terms of the knowledge of the of, of hadith do you understand and of course the understanding of it all the fiqh of it right the fiqh of hadith and so forth this is all that's understood by by sunnah right like i said sunnah can mean different things depending on context i can give you five different meanings of the word sunnah five different meanings of the word sunnah depending on the context that you use it in but here what's meant is 
the hadith of the Prophet that incorporates his method, his worship and so forth and the understanding of it. And he never said, Aqra'uhum bi sunnah. The one who memorized more of the sunnah. Because the sunnah is not like the Quran that is recited. But rather, the one who knows the most, the most knowledgeable one. You see the difference? You have a hafid, is he an alim? But if you have an alim of the sunnah, is he hafid necessarily? No. There's a difference between the two. You can have someone who's both, yes, definitely. But this is the difference in the hadith. The one is saying, firstly, the one, who's a, the, the one who knows the most Quran must lead. The hafiz, basically. Then if they are equal, then we move to the, the one who has more knowledge of the sunnah. The alim, basically. Now we look at the one who knows more of, 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 of the general sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? Um, and there was an incident that happened once on Hajj. This was mentioned by one of the Egyptian shuyukh. He said he went on Hajj. And he was sitting in the tent. And was amongst the scholars and so forth. And he said, in this gathering was Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah. And he's the, like the leader of the gathering. And on his right hand side is Sheikh ibn Uthaymin, rahimahullah, the, the one with the, the commentary that we are using. And on his left hand side is who? Sheikh Albani, rahimahullah. The, the master of hadith, scholar of hadith. So you've got Ibn Baz, Ibn Uthaymin, and Sheikh Albani. So the Sheikh pauses and he says, can you imagine what a gathering it was when these three men came together? Can you imagine? Because those, that was the three most knowledgeable people on the face of the earth. And if you look till today, nobody had a bigger effect on the ummah from their time, of course, than these three men. In the last 50 years, nobody had a 60, 70 years, nobody had a bigger impact on the ummah from the ulama than these three men. Sheikh bin Bash, Sheikh Ibn Thaymin, and Sheikh Al-Albani, rahimahumullah. So the sheikh is sitting there and the students are asking questions. And every question that came that had to do with aqeedah, Sheikh bin Baz would answer. Every question that was related in fiqh, he would tell Ibn Uthaymin to answer. It was the sheikh's speciality, fiqh. And every question that was related to hadith and its sciences, he would say, Sheikh Albani, you answer this issue. That's how he handled the, the, the gathering. And then came the time for salah. So all, everybody made the sufuf, somebody gave the adhan, and he said all the students were watching who was going to lead the salah. Right? And so what happened was this? Everybody stood back and expected Sheikh bin Baaz to lead the salah. Likewise, Sheikh Albani and Sheikh bin Uthaymin stood back. And then Sheikh bin Baaz, he stood and he said, Taqaddam, Ya Aba Abdurrahman. Go forward, O oh Abdurrahman, meaning? Referring to Sheikh Albani, or Abu Abdurrahman. So Sheikh Albani said, no, you the Amir of the Majlis. You the Amir, yeah? you must lead the Salah. And what did Sheikh bin Ba'a say? He said, all three of us are the same when it comes to Quran. You're all Hufad. All three of us are what? Are equal when it comes to Quran, but you the most knowledgeable of the Sunnah. So you have to go forward. And so he stood forward. And he did the Salah. Exactly what this hadith is basically saying. 
the Sheikh is, he was mentioned the story when it, how it happened, and this is what Sheikh Birbah said to him, and he had to go forward. And he went and he led the salah. Um, so this is how it should be. If they're both hafid, we look at the one who's generally the most knowledgeable of the sunnah specifically, right? That refers to more had science of hadith and so forth and the fiqh of it, and he should then lead the salah, right? Sheikh Albani was a muhadith. So this is maybe why the Sheikh decided he should lead the salah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ultimately knows best. Um, and if they are equal in that, now this is very, very rare that you're going to be equal in this. Or maybe, you know, they're both students of knowledge, they're both on a similar level, so who is more knowledgeable? It's difficult to say. So if that's the case, the one who made the earliest hijrah should, should, should lead the salah. And this is understood. If he made the hijrah in the first year, in the second year, third year, whoever made it earlier, he should lead the salah. In our context, this wouldn't, wouldn't apply. But let's say we move to Saudi Arabia. We make hijrah. It's hijrah. It's still hijrah. When you leave the ballad of kufr to a Muslim land, that's hijrah. So there we pack up and we move to Saudi. And as we are standing there, we are about to lead the salah. We both have it and we both on the similar level of deen. Who leads the salah? The one who made the hijrah first. It could be applicable. In reality, it could be applicable in a, in a situation like this. And Allah knows best. And if they are equal in that, let's say they made hijrah together. They made hijrah together. Then the one who is, the one who entered Islam first. So if they were not born Muslim, they're born Muslim, this wouldn't apply. Right? If they, if they were born Muslim, then this would not apply. But if one of them or both of them were not born Muslim, yani, or they were born Muslim but they were raised non-Muslim, and then they accepted Islam, the one who accepted Islam first, will lead the salah. And if they are equal in that, let's say they were born Muslim, so they are equal, or they accepted Islam the same day, then the elder of the two should lead the salah. Understand? Then the one who is older should um, lead the salah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So this is the tartib that the hadith gives us. Some of the other ulama mention other things like if all of this is still equal, then the one who is the most handsome must lead the salah. And if that's not the case, then the one who is like this must lead the salah. And if that's not the case, but those things really have no, no evidence for it in reality. That's for all the other conditions and so forth. The hadith then says, a man should not lead another man if the other holds authority, what does this mean? This can be firstly something general, like for example, in a general sense, if we're in a Muslim country, and the king of that country, or the prince of that city, he walks into the masjid. There's nobody that, that has a higher authority than him, right? So technically speaking, he's the authority, he has a right to, to lead the salah. Okay? In a more specific sense, This can apply to whom? To the Imam of Masjid. He has authority in that Masjid. And also to a Sahibul Bayt. This is your house. You have authority in this house. A person who comes into this house has no authority over you. Likewise, the Hadith is saying he's not allowed to lead the Salah over that man if this is his authority. Understand? So the person whose house it is, he has the right to lead the Salah. 
Nobody can walk in here and say, I'm a sheikh, I'm leading the salah. Stand back. Haram, not permissible. Not permissible. The person who's the owner of the house must lead the salah. Let me reword that. He has the authority to lead the salah. And the person cannot just lead without his permission. Illa bi'idnihi. Except by his permission. Then it's permissible. So if he says, look, you fadl, you're more learned. Or you fadl, you know more Quran. Then he can lead. Then he should lead the salah. But otherwise, he should stand back. It's time for salah. We're about to pray. He should stand back. He has no right to just walk to the front and start leading the salah. Understand this point? So the Prophet is also placing these conditions in, pl- in putting these conditions down. That you cannot just go to the front and lead the salah, especially when it's not your authority to basically do this. Right? Likewise, the imam of a masjid, if he's the imam, nobody else can just walk in and lead the salah. Even if the person is a more hafi than him, he knows ashar riwayat, he knows he's the alim of the sunnah, he has to stand at the back. He has to stand at the back because it's not his place. That's the imam. He is the official imam of the masjid. That's his authority. Unless he tells that guy, look, Sheikh, can you please come to the front and lead the salah? Then this is permissible. Or occupy his place of honor in his house without his permission. What does this mean? Or occupy his place of honor in his house without his permission. Right? But also his seat in the house. For example. Let's say that he's, that's his seat. He sits there. That's the old man's seat. That's his house. It's where he sits, for example. Nobody should take that place. Obviously, if he doesn't know, it's one thing. But otherwise, if it's known, you're not allowed to take his place. At the head of the table, that's his place. Right? The sheikh gives an example of when the food is served, nobody can go sit and eat. Until he comes and he sits and he says, eat, or he tells them, Fadl, eat. You have to wait for him. He's in charge, he's his authority, and so forth, and Allah knows best. Right? The benefits of this hadith is, again, the one who knows the most Quran, he must lead the, he must lead the salah. Okay? Now, some of the ulama on this issue, they said that we have to understand that this hadith and this happened in the time of the Sahaba. And the Sahaba, عنهم, all of them, they were knowledgeable of the Quran. Meaning what? Or at least knowledgeable of the deen. When they memorized, they memorized 10 ayat at a time. Studied it, moved on. Studied it, moved on. Right? Whereas today, today, the roles reversed. People just memorize. But they don't also have any knowledge along with it. So this is why some ulama said that even if a person knows more Quran, the person who's more knowledgeable should actually lead the salah. Why? Because that person may not know. He may not have any knowledge. He maybe has more hiv, but he doesn't have any knowledge and so forth. Right? Anyways, the, Ibn Uthaymah, he says that we stick to what the hadith says. And that is that the one who knows more of the Quran, he should lead the salah unless we are sure that he doesn't have any knowledge. 
Right? So for example, he doesn't know that the Fatiha is a rukun. He doesn't know what's wajib. What's the arkan of the salah? Right? These are the basics of salah. Which takbirat is rukun, which takbirat is, is wajib. Right? Then he shouldn't lead the salah. You understand? So this is very important to understand the basics of the, of the salah and what's required of an imam. He should know that at least. Because if he doesn't know that, and he makes a mistake in the salah, then there can be a problem. He may not know when to do sajid al-sahwi, or how to do it, or when he has to go back because it's a rukun, it's not a wajib. If you miss a wajib, you can do sajid at the end. If you miss a rukun, you cannot make up for it with a sajid, you have to go back to the rukun. This is the basic knowledge of salah. So the shaykh is basically saying, if a person knows that, then he must lead, and he's aqra'a. And he knows more of the Qur'an and he must lead. If he doesn't know that, then it's better for him not to lead. Because this hadith, the Sahaba, they knew these things. So for them to put a six-year-old, seven-year-old who knew this in front was one thing. For us to put a six-year-old or seven-year-old or even a ten-year-old in front and he doesn't know anything. All he knows is he memorized ten Jews under his sheikh. Verbatim, he can read it. But what ilm does he have with that? Little to nothing. He just memorized the youngster. Right? So in that case, there's better not for him to read the salah. Because anything can happen in the salah. He breaks his wudu. Or he doesn't know he broke his wudu. Or he skipped a rak'ah. He doesn't know what to do. People are shouting subhanallah at the back. And it ends up in a big fitna at the end of the day. If the person knows what he must do, then, it's one, then that's something different. Understand? So as long as he knows the basics of the salah, he knows the rulings of the salah in terms of uh, the fard and the rukuns and so forth, then he, can, then he should lead. If that's not the case, then he should, not, he should not yet lead. He should not yet lead. Understand? To be on the safe side. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Again, the Sheikh says, Is it permissible for the one who is the most versed to decline the imamah? Right? We say he shouldn't decline. Right? He should not decline. It's not, it's not, not becoming. It's not befitting. He should um, lead the salah. Right? Um, Naam, he should lead the salah. Tayyib, another benefit is that the Quran is kalamullah. Because it says in it, the hadith says, لِكِتَابِ For the book of Allah. This proves that this is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the aqeer of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah that the Quran is the speech of Allah, the uncreated speech of Allah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed via Jibreel alayhi salam to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it's uncreated. It's one of the attributes of Allah. This is what we believe. Allah spoke these words. He spoke these words in a true sense. This is what our aqeedah is. As opposed to the people of Aqeedah of the Ashairah, of the Ash'aris, and the Maturidis, or the Mu'tazila. They have a different Aqeedah when it comes to this. Right? So some of them believe the Qur'an is created. Some of them believe that Allah never said these words in a true sense. And they have the whole technical back and forth arguments. There's no time to, no need to really go into that, I think. Our Aqeedah is what? This is the speech of Allah. Allah spoke these words in a true sense. 
It's Allah's speech that was revealed by Jibreel alayhi salam to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and it's uncreated. Meaning it was not created. It's part of Allah's speech. You cannot, Allah cannot create the part of himself, right? Or his attributes. So this is not created. And this is an important point of aqeedah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Taib, the issue of knowledge of the sunnah is, is to know its meanings as well. Because that's what we said, knowledge of the sunnah, not just memorizing of the sunnah. So sometimes people memorize, like this book we teaching, Bulughul Maram. It's famously memorized from among students of knowledge. The ahadith in here are memorized. But you get other books that are also memorized, like Muntakal Akbar, for example, which is even bigger than Bulugh. Right, so you have two people, one memorizes Muntaqa, one memorizes Bulugh. But the one who memorizes Bulugh, he understands a hadith better. He has more knowledge than the one who memorizes the bigger book. In this case, he will take preference over the one who memorized more. It's not about memorization of the Sunnah, it's about understanding and knowledge of the Sunnah. That's what we meant by the one who has more knowledge of the Sunnah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Taib, the last hadith is... From Ibn Majah, from Hadith Jabir, from Hadith Jabir, the Prophet said, "La ta'umanna imra'atan rajulan." A female should not lead a man in salah. Wala a'rabiyu muhajiran. Nor should a Bedouin lead an immigrant. Wala fajirun mu'minan. Nor should a sinner or an immoral person lead a mu'min, a believer. The Hadith is wahin, meaning it's very weak. Or some say it's even fabricated. Right? However, let's look at some of the points because some of them are authentic and some of them are also are, are inaccurate. Number one is a female leading a man. Right? Is this permissible? We say it's not permissible. Even though this hadith is weak, there are other evidences for this. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Al-Rijalu qawwamuna ala nisa ibn ma'faddalallahu ba'dahum ala ba'd. Surah Nisa, verse 34. Allah said, that the men have been placed in charge of the woman. They are placed in charge of the woman. So they are in authority over the woman. They lead the woman. From the Sunnah, Rasulullah said in a hadith in Bukhari, لَن يُفْلِحْ قَوْمْ A people will never be successful if a woman leads them in their affairs. A people will never be successful if a, if a woman leads them in their, in their affairs, right? Leading them, it could be salah as well. Jama'ah, salah is a jama'ah, it's a, it's a major issue. So that's some hadith. As in terms of logical evidence, then what's going to happen is you have a woman standing in front of the salah and a whole lot of men standing behind her. What's going to happen? Fitna is going to happen. She's going to go into rukur. And all of the men are going to be looking at her, at her figure, at her backside. And she goes into sujood, Shaykh Ibn Uthaymi says it's even worse. The Shaykh says in the book, he says it's even worse. She goes into sujood, it's even more of fitna. Right? I mean, all that, this is normal. Human nature, everybody knows this. Right? And the, also the hadith tells us, The best soft for the woman is the back soft. Right? And just by the way, on this hadith, uh, this actually, we'll do this hadith next week. But, 
What does this tell us? In the time of the Prophet wasallam, there was no barrier. Right? So this is why he said this hadith. He said, the best to fall for the men is the first and the worst is the backs off. The best for the woman is the back and the worst is the front. Why? Because you're closer to the men. And there was no barrier at the time. So the best for you is to be furthest away at the back. Away from fitna. Imagine they are in front of the men. You understand? It's even way, way worse. Because of the fitna that's going to happen. Right? So we agree with that part of the hadith. That a female should not lead a man in the salah. And this, this is like almost agreed upon amongst all of the classical scholars of Ahlul Sunnah wa Jama'ah. You'll find it today. You'll see pictures of these westerners and modernists, feminists. Where the woman must lead the salah. But that's not the way of, of Ahlul Sunnah wa Jama'ah. Nor should a Bedouin lead an immigrant, a muhajir, somebody who made hijrah. Does this make sense? This doesn't make sense. This is more according to the general rule. The general rule is that the Bedouin generally knows less. He generally is rough, he's tough, he doesn't know much. But you may find a Bedouin that knows more. In that case, if he's Akra, he must lead the salah. So we don't agree with this part of the hadith. Remember the hadith is weak, so we do not use it as an evidence. But the first part we agree with, hence we touched on it. This part we do not actually agree with because there's no actual evidence to support it. Point number three is, وَلَا فَاجِر And a fajir should not lead a mu'min. Meaning, a major sinner should not lead a, a true believer. A righteous person. Right? Now this is a long discussion. What is a major sinner? Somebody who does major sins. Right? What is major sins? You understand? And secondly, who is free from, from sin? And all of this. this is a long discussion. So the Sheikh, he says, try to summarize what he says. He basically says that when it comes to a sinner, then we have to look at where his sins are before we say his salah is valid or invalid. Technically, a sinner is a Muslim. So his salah is what? Is valid. Therefore, if his salah is valid, his imamah is valid. Understand? If his salah is valid, for him to be the imam is also, is also valid. So we need to look at his sins that he's doing. Does this nullify the salah or not? If it nullifies the salah, then he can't be the imam. And if it does not nullify the salah, then for him to be the imam is, is valid. It's valid. Understand? So if it nullifies the salah, for example, he says, um, a person, he eats camel meat before the salah, breaks his wudu, and we say to him, you must take wudu, but he refuses, and he makes the salah. Would you pray behind him? Better not to pray behind him. Right? His sin is in the salah, related to the salah. Then he mentions the issue of isbal, which is when the pants is hanging over the ankles. Because some scholars stated that it's not permissible to pray like that and to lead the salah like that. So if you follow that view, then technically if he's, if he's praying like that, you should not be praying behind him. Because sin is in the salah. Understand? And so forth. But if his sin is outside of the salah, he's a smoker. He's, he's a person of ghiba and namima. Right? He's a liar. Spreads tales and gossip. His salah is valid. He's a major sinner. But the salah would be, would be valid. You understand? Because the principle is, if his salah is valid by himself, it will be valid as an imam. 
He's a sinner, but he's still a Muslim. His salah will still be valid. That's point number one. Point number two is, if we say that it's not allowed, then who stands in front and who does not stand in front? If we say you're not allowed to pray behind a sinner, right? Then imagine this. Three friends coming to the masjid. The one is a chain smoker. The other one shaved his beard. It's a major sin. The other one, the other one, he is known to be a liar and he cheats in business. So you've got three sinners in the, in the masjid. Who stands in front? If you say that you cannot pray behind a sinner, that means they must all make salah by themselves. You understand? Because then jama'ah won't be valid. They're all sinners. Are you with me? So this can't work. Secondly, we don't actually know who the true pious person is. And who's the, who, they don't, what does the imam do in private? People don't know. He could also be a sinner, a major sinner. Understand? So, that's also not accepted. And who in reality is safe from ghibah? Which person can say he never does ghibah? Which person can say he never looks at a woman in the street? Never ever. Which per- you understand? Every person falls into some sin somewhere along the line. So if we say this condition, that means that there will be nobody to lead the salah. There will be very, very few people that actually qualifies to lead the salah. So the whole jama'ah will be basically, everybody just pray at home. This cannot work. Right? The sahaba also, point number three is the sahaba prayed behind major sinners. Like Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, a thaqafi. He was a major sinner. He killed other people. He killed Sahaba. He was a leader. He killed Sahaba. But he, he was the leader and he led the Salah. They had to make Salah behind him and they did. This proves that it's permissible. He was a Muslim. He was a Muslim. But he was a major sinner. He was a tyrant. This is now towards after the time of the Prophet and so forth. Some of the Sahaba were still alive. They prayed behind him. So this proves that it's permissible to pray behind a, a sinner. You understand? And those, that's enough of, of an evidence, basically, that it proves that it is permissible to pray behind a sinner. Obviously, this doesn't mean that you recommend praying behind him or that he should be, you know, pushed to the front. If a person is an open sinner, you can see he's a sinner, right? You can see where he lives, where he dresses, what he's known for. He cheats in business. He's this, he's that, he's a piece of fitna, he's... He lies to people. He, he, such a person should not be made to lead the salah in the first place. If he does, the salah is valid behind him. But ideally, you want a person who is a good role model to lead the salah. His aqidah is correct. That's point number one. That's another issue. I haven't even spoken about that. Secondly, he's not a person of bid'ah. So what happens if a person of bid'ah leads the salah? Is it permissible to pray behind him? So he does maulid, makes dua after salah. He does various things that's bid'ah. Can you pray behind him or not? Yes, as long as he's a Muslim. As long as he's not doing acts of kufr and shirk. If he's doing shirk and disbelief, he worships the dead, calls on other people, he does this, he does that, such a person we don't pray behind. Then you can walk out of the masjid. Because that person is a, he's a major, not just a sinner now, he's upon kufr and disbelief and shirk. That, we don't pray behind such a person. But anything else, as far as you know, it is not upon shirk. He, whatever sins he's known for, is, you, you don't like that he's leading the salah, 
Is that befitting that he leads the salah? Because you know what he's up to. You, you can still pray behind him. Your salah is still valid behind him. Because as we mentioned with Hajjaj and others, and the other evidence that we mentioned, it's valid behind him. So we don't accept this, this actual part of the hadith. Right? It's not befitting, but it would be valid. Also, we have to look at the sin. Is it in the salah or outside? If it's in the salah, then we can say, no, look, this person does this in the salah and I don't agree with it. That's why I don't pray behind him. Do you understand? Maybe even the Fatiha we can use. Let's say he, he completely distorts the Fatiha. You know, he completely distorts the Fatiha. Then we can say, you know what, I, I prefer not to pray there because that Imam distorts the Fatiha. Or he commits something in the Salah that could invalidate the Salah. Then we can say we don't pray behind him. Understand? And the Sheikh mentions another example. He says, what they said, what if somebody asks you about a person who moves around a lot in the Salah? You know, he stands and he's always fidgeting. Looks at his watch, he does this, he's playing with his scarf, he's playing with his stove, he's playing with his abaya, he's playing with everything. Should he pray behind him or not? So the sheikh says, if he moves so much that it breaks the salah, then you not, should not pray behind him. You should not pray behind him because it breaks the salah. But if he moves, you know, and it's not befitting, it's just not befitting to pray behind. It's not, he should not, basically should not be made the imam. That's what the sheikh is saying. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Shadu wa la ilahi illa atastaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.